This podcast is about the earliest signs of an emerging trafficking empire and the corrupt politicians that profited from it. It is about the decades of abuse of minority communities disguised as public policies. It is about that system that nurtured an uncontrollable monster that continues to birth ultra-violent and merciless reapers. Understanding the war on drugs and its resulting insurgency is critical in understanding the Mexico we know today. This is Demoler. In the last episode, we covered how marijuana was demonized by Mexican politicians, doctors, and media far before the reefer madness became a staple of America's drug war. But the surge in demand for Mexican marijuana and heroin in the United States in the late 1960s made it trafficking gold. So much so, the Nixon administration bullied Mexico into implementing tougher campaigns following Operation Intercept. Operation Intercept left a sour taste in the mouths of the Mexican government. Instead of achieving the large seizures it set out to do, the United States ended up complicating relations with its southern neighbor, all while traffickers diversified their transport to the air and sea. For the Nixon administration, the objective went far beyond reducing marijuana and heroin traffic from Mexico. The United States was actually pressuring Mexico to adopt a more hardline approach to drug cultivation and production, and it achieved it. The economic impact of the border shutdown forced Mexico into agreeing with the 1969 Operation Cooperation. In Mexico, the operation was codenamed Canador for cannabis and adormidera, the Spanish word for poppy. As part of the operation, the Secretary of National Defense, known as Sedena, deployed 5,000 soldiers to drug cultivation areas to escalate its manual eradication campaign. And for the first time, U.S. law enforcement personnel were permitted to operate on Mexican soil to monitor Mexican soldiers' work. Despite increased counter-narcotic efforts, the Gustavo Díaz Ordaz administration rejected additional requests from the U.S. government. Díaz Ordaz was far more focused on eradicating political dissidents and squashing anti-government protests than he was on placing the full force of the federal government on traffickers. It was under Díaz Ordaz's government that Mexico's dirty war against left-wing student movements began, leading to the Tlatelolco massacre of 1968. But the U.S. wanted Mexico's full attention on their drug eradication efforts, including that the Mexicans allow the use of multispectral aerial photography technology and remote sensing equipment and aircraft to spread herbicides. They also wanted the destruction of laboratories and warehouses and the use of law enforcement personnel to expand undercover operations and intelligence work. But it didn't matter that Díaz Ordaz rejected the additional request. It was his final days in the administration anyway. In 1970, his Secretary of Interior and one of the masterminds of the 1968 massacre, Luis Echeverria, was handpicked to succeed him. 
this new incoming president would be far more agreeable to U.S. requests. In 1971, under the new Echeverria administration, Mexico's penalties for drug offenses broadened. Sentences jumped to 15 years, bail was eliminated, and lands on which drugs were cultivated were seized by the government. By 1975, the Mexican government was under renewed pressure to do more against drug trafficking. According to a letter sent by U.S. Congressman Charles B. Rangel to U.S. President Gerald Ford, the illegal export of opium to the U.S. should be considered a national security threat. That same year, a classified 1975 paper by the U.S. entitled Potential for a Forward Strategy Against Heroin in Mexico suggested that if Mexico was reluctant to initiate an intensive eradication effort, it would need to resort to fabricating some external or induced incentives. The proposed incentives were a series of state-coordinated public humiliation attempts and diplomatic bullying. Stories that high-ranking officials within President Luis Echeverria's government were high-ranking traffickers also started making headlines in the New York Times. The stories we know now were closer to the truth than Mexico is willing to reveal, but they were deeply embarrassing public accusations against the Mexican president. The American negative PR campaigns against Mexico worked. By November of that year, Mexico announced it would begin airborne herbicide campaigns to kill its drug crops. The campaigns would be coordinated with the help of the nascent Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, which had just been formed two years earlier to consolidate and control all of the U.S. drug enforcement efforts. The operation was called the Joint Opium Poppy Eradication Interdiction Campaign, known as TRISO, or TRIZONE. It focused on three major drug production zones, covering a total of 12 states across three regional zones. The DEA sent several contract pilots and agents with experience in Vietnam to conduct spraying missions and reconnaissance flights. The first phase included spraying Paraquat on marijuana fields and 2,4-D on poppy fields. President Echeverria also deployed 1,600 soldiers to occupy areas of the Golden Triangle in the states of Sinaloa, Durango, and Chihuahua, known as the epicenter of production and trafficking of marijuana and opium poppy since the 1930s. Phase two of the operation concluded in November of 1976, but the operation had not ended. The biggest one was just beginning, and the DEA had succeeded in cementing an enduring role in Mexico's anti-drug campaign. Now, both countries had agreed to a permanent aerial defoliation campaign that would include expanding military control over cultivation areas. The new operation, known as Operation Condor, came into effect in Culiacán, Sinaloa on January 16, 1977, only a month and a half after new president José López Portillo took office. During his annual State of the Nation address, President López Portillo did for the first time what no other president of the Mexican Republic had done. He called the operation a war on drugs. 
General Jose Francisco Hernández Toledo, the general responsible for numerous military assaults on public universities, including the Tlatelolco massacre, was given command of the operation, which had now expanded to 13 zones. It was called the world's first large-scale herbicide campaign to target narcotics. The operation initially started over most of Mexico's west coast, from Sonora to Oaxaca, and then expanded to the south in Chiapas, to the east in Veracruz, and north in Coahuila. Thousands more boots were put on the ground. But Operation Condor was not just aimed at drug traffickers. Instead, it was poised to tackle their real internal enemies, agrarian, guerrilla, and human rights movements active in Sinaloa and Chihuahua during the 1970s. Condor followed the modus operandi of Mexico's dirty war that sought to eliminate insurgents and guerrilla movements in Guerrero in the 1960s. During the Diaz Ordaz administration, being a guerrilla member or political insurgent was a far bigger death sentence than being a trafficker. And that would not change under Luis Echeverria or Jose Lopez Portillo. As Kate Doyle explains, under Echeverria, military morale and its public image was declining in the wake of the brutal 1968 Tlatelolco massacre. She wrote, Low pay, scant resources, an aging upper echelon, and rusting equipment all contributed to discontent and restlessness within the armed forces. But guerrilla groups increased high-profile kidnappings and attacks, including shooting down the helicopter carrying Guerrero Governor Cariño Maldonado Perez. Documents sourced from the State Department say that the guerrilla escalations caused concern in Washington, and in September 1971, State Department analysts wondered if Mexico had an emerging internal security problem. While the State Department reportedly agreed that Echeverria is taking a direct interest in security force operations, the escalation of attacks against the left, coupled with the gruntled military force, was causing concern. One proposed solution, according to the State Department, would be for Echeverria to give the military more resources and freedom to operate. Their report read, the troops would be probably willing to forget their difficulties temporarily if given the chance to crack a few heads. Between 1973 to 1979, the 23rd of September Communist League orchestrated some 60 armed attacks, including kidnappings, bank robberies, and targeted assassinations. The threat of left-wing guerrilla movements began to be conflated with the threat of ruthless drug trafficking organizations for the American media. According to Benjamin T. Smith, the Americans pushed the idea that guerrilla forces were buying high-caliber weapons from narco-traffickers. It fed the narrative that drugs were not just killing Americans, but they were now funding their Cold War enemies too. But secret investigations by the Mexicans in 1974 brought forth no conclusive evidence. The investigations revealed that it wasn't the left-wing guerrillas buying up these weapons. It was poorly or unequipped cops making these purchases. For the DEA and the Mexican government, the smoking gun in the link between guerrillas and traffickers was Cuban-American Alberto Cecilia Falcón, 
one of the first cocaine kinpins in Mexico in the early 1970s. Authorities called him the leader of the world's largest cocaine and marijuana trafficking organization. DEA investigations found that Cecilia Falcón was moving product from Sinaloa producers and flying it up to Tijuana and finally up to the U.S. soil in San Diego, California. The Cuban-American was also smuggling coke from South America. The DEA estimated that his operations were reining in some $3.6 million a week, making him the biggest trafficker at that time. The DEA shared their investigation with the Mexican federales, and after enough pressure had been applied, in 1975, he was arrested by Mexican federal police. During a raid of his mansion, which was known as the Roundhouse, police discovered Cuban, American, and Mexican passports and Swiss bank accounts with $260 million. During a heavy-handed interrogation, the trafficker said he was an operative for the CIA, tasked with using his drug proceeds to supply guns to the rebels in South America. He told police he was a CIA protege trained at Fort Jackson as a partisan in the secret war against Castro's Cuba. In return for helping the CIA move weapons to certain groups in Central America, the agency facilitated his movement of heroin and other drugs. Cecilia Falcón was arrested alongside José Egosi Bejar, a CIA-trained operative who was involved in the 1961 attempted toppling of Fidel Castro known as the Bay of Pigs. According to journalist James Mills, who wrote The Underground Empire, the DEA agents investigating Cecilia Falcón speculated that the CIA recruited him in Miami and assisted his rise in the Mexican underworld. That is, until he got too big for their own liking and he had to be taken down. Whether or not his alleged connections to the CIA are true is unknown, but many historians now dispute it. However, Cecilia Falcón still enjoyed support from the highest places in Mexico's elite. One of his most important allies was the chief of the powerful Federal Security Directorate, the DFS, Miguel Nazararo. According to Mills, when Cecilia Falcón was arrested, Nazararo intervened to spare the Cuban from torture, perhaps less so from the kindness of his heart and more so to prevent him from divulging any compromising information. Nazararo had a long history of aiding Cubans implicated in assassination plots against Cuban state officials and diplomats. He was key in protecting several members of the Coru militant group implicated in the botched kidnapping of the Cuban consul in Mérida in 1976. Another one of Cecilia Falcón's closest pals, according to Mills, was former President Echeverria's brother-in-law, Ruben Suno Arce, who years later will be implicated in the kidnapping, torture, and murder of DEA agent Enrique Kiki Camarena and Secretary of the Interior Mayo Moya Palencia and other top officials involved in protection rackets. Cecilia Falcón was sent to Mexico's Lecumberi prison, famously known as Palacio Negro, the Black Palace. But he escaped. He purchased a home across the street from El Palacio and he financed a tunnel. But three days later, he was recaptured. 
For the DEA, the arrest of the Cuban-American was enough to create a link between narco-traffickers and left-wing insurgents. It didn't matter those Central American rebels were not located in Mexico. In Guerrero, the military implemented Plan Tecpac to combat drug traffickers allegedly arming guerrillas. But the military never produced any evidence that this was the case. After all, the evidence didn't matter. Almost inevitably, or perhaps by design, Operation Condor became a smokescreen to fight the growing leftist movements in Mexico. It was a counterinsurgency campaign operating under the guise of drug eradication. During his 1988 asylum hearing in Canada, Mexican army deserter Zacarias Osario Cruz testified that he participated in Operation Condor to eliminate the political opposition in Guamuchil, Sinaloa. Osario Cruz described receiving orders from high command to kill prisoners in clandestine executions from 1977 to 1981 in the military shooting camps of San Miguel de los Hawayes and San Juan de Otihuacan, state of Mexico. General Jose Francisco Hernández Toledo was directly implicated in giving those orders. Antonio Hernández, a former guerrilla fighter, testified in the same asylum hearing that while he was in a secret prison and military camp number one in Guerrero, he observed traffickers and activists held there. The traffickers were tortured until they paid to be brought before a judge. Those who could not muster any sort of payment to buy their trial were killed. Even in an operation carried out to dismantle drug operations, your purchasing power still reigned supreme. The soldiers became the occupiers in their own country, pillaging villages, ransacking homes, and raping women. Farmers accused soldiers of planting marijuana on their properties or trucks to use as a means of arrest. Hundreds of farmers, guilty or not, were turned over to the Federal Judicial Police, the PJF, to be tortured into giving any incriminating evidence. Others were spared in return for snitching on their neighbors. In 1978, the Sinaloa Bar Association was the Kio Buena, an NGO that documented human rights abuses by the police and the military, detailed that 90% of the arrests coordinated by the PJF and the troops were illegal because they neither had arrest warrants nor search warrants. Their report also listed torture techniques employed by the agents, including electric shocks in the genitals, suffocation, waterboarding, reverse hanging, and much more. Women were raped, and babies were tortured in front of their parents. It was sheer, state-sanctioned brutality. According to Smith, DEA agents nicknamed the operation the Atrocities. They even joked that the head of the PJF in Culiacán, Jaime Alcala Garcia, had killed more people than smallpox. A DEA agent stationed in Culiacán recalls, Alcala immediately began to purge the criminal elements by torturing and killing them. It was known he had created unmarked cemeteries in remote areas where he buried hundreds of violent criminals. The DEA agents were obliged to report any sort of wrongdoing 
especially torture to their superiors, but they never did. In three years of the joint operation, there are no records of a single complaint. Instead, a PJF agent stated that the Americans would sit in the back, recording confessions while the Mexicans went to work torturing detainees. No evidence suggests that the U.S. encouraged Mexico's squashing of agrarian communities or leftist groups, but there is evidence that the U.S. knew it was happening and simply did nothing about it. It was during this time that U.S. President Jimmy Carter condemned human rights abuses as a result of the dirty wars in Argentina, Chile, and Brazil, but remained silent on Mexico's atrocities. Surviving farmers also decried that in areas that were sprayed, crops would no longer grow, water supplies were contaminated, and children caught in the chemical mist got very sick and died. Many even doubted that the chemicals were Paraquat or 2,4-D. It was damaging public health in the name of public health. The cost of the operation was also much greater. It left a lasting impact on hundreds of communities whose negative views of the military and the state were reinforced by their brutal approach to drug eradication, a view that would remain for decades to come. General Hernández Toledo had stated early on that the operation would wrap up in six months. Three years later, the operation was still on its feet. And during those first three years of Condor, Villagers were displaced, communities were ravaged, hundreds of people were arrested, tortured, and jailed. Hundreds or even thousands were killed. Many of them were just numbers on our missing persons official tally. But not a single drug trafficking boss or their colluding federal agents were taken down. Instead, the big-time traffickers fled to calmer regions including the would-be members of the Guadalajara cartel, who fled to Jalisco. The Mexican growers lost much of their product, and the weed that they did sell was testing positive for Paraquat. As Mexico's growers began to falter, Colombian growers began filling the market void. Yet, Americans and Mexicans boasted of big successes, putting figures of how greatly the operation had drastically reduced the smuggling of drugs north of the border. They routinely invited journalists for photo ops at drug burning sites or paraded detained traffickers for the media. DEA sources in Mexico City reported heroin supplied by Mexicans declined by 85% in 1974 to 50% in 1978, and marijuana from 90% to just 20%. According to official government reports, Mexican soldiers destroyed 43,915 plots of poppy and 14,801 hectares of marijuana fields. It started becoming a blueprint for militarized counter-narcotics measures. In 1978, Peter Bourne, director of the White House Office of Drug Abuse Policy, told the Senate subcommittee, The ongoing activities of the Mexican and American governments in the field of drug control must rank among the most exemplary forms of international cooperation in the world today. Four years later, U.S. and Mexican officials were boasting that 
the success of Mexico's program to eradicate opium poppies, from which heroin is produced, and marijuana is more than evident in the scarcity, inaccessibility, and the tiny size of the fields being sprayed in the inhospitable mountains east of Culiacán near the Pacific coast 650 miles northwest of Mexico City. And while officials claimed that hectares of plantations were destroyed, production was reduced, and prices rose in the international illicit market, drugs continued moving through American streets and soldiers continued pillaging Mexican communities. Investigative reporter Elaine Shannon wrote that it was actually a bad drought, not herbicidal spraying, that caused a short-term decline in Mexico's drug production. The DEA would later learn that Mexican pilots were actually either spraying the crops with water, dumping their herbicide in the desert, or shaking down drug barons for bribes in exchange for sparing their crops. It was all a sham. The DEA sent the report to Washington, but yet again, the State Department buried them. But the Mexicans could not have launched the operations themselves. State police in some states had gotten so powerful from lucrative kickbacks that they were almost untouchable, especially in Sinaloa. It was known that even agents of the PJF would fight to get assigned to Sinaloa. It was a land of quick bucks, and everybody wanted in. The federal government needed much more money and control to be able to make any sort of dent against state-protected drug conspiracies. And the U.S. support filled that void. The U.S. largely funded the operation, putting forth all the chemicals, aircraft, and technology for the operations. The Mexican government was even allowed to keep the helicopters and planes America supplied for the operation. In the late 1970s, the U.S. had supplied 76 planes and had given at least $115 million in training and equipment, and over half of the U.S. counter-narcotics budget was heading towards Mexico. It was evident that the U.S. wanted the operation to appear as a raging success, even if it was all a mirage. Beyond providing the funding, hardware, and personnel for the operation, the Americans lent it its most prized possession, its legitimacy. It received America's stamp of approval, and by extension, the world's. All accusations of torture, forced disappearances, kidnappings, and human rights abuses never saw daylight. The operation was a turning point for Mexico's counter-narcotic measures. It militarized its efforts and centralized Mexico's drug policy away from the state and toward the federal government. And in major trafficking states, like in Sinaloa, it curbed the control that the Sinaloa Judicial Police and the Sinaloa Municipal Police had over the trade. The disruption to the old networks allowed the PJF and the Federal Security Directorate, the DFS, to usurp control from the municipal and state authorities. And together with the military, it effectively took over controlling the lucrative drug trade. Old rackets out, new rackets in. Those allied with the federal government were allowed to survive. Those who were not were ruthlessly squashed. 
Historians and journalists, including José Luis García Cabrera, argue that Operation Condor was launched as a means to increase the federal government's participation in the drug trade. The operation allowed the federal government access where there had been previously little to no institutional oversight and gave the military full clearance to tackle insurgent groups. After all, they claimed, it was the traffickers themselves who were arming them. It was a way for the federal government to regulate competition among the top traffickers, all while retaining some degree of authority and oversight in those major networks. CIA records showed that the chief of the DFS would grant traffickers police badges to use. The badges would not only allow traffickers to act with impunity, but also effectively brought trafficking under the oversight of federal law enforcement. One of the recipients of those badges was Miguel Ángel Félix Gallardo, a former PJF cop and the founder of the Guadalajara cartel, as well as Cuban-American trafficker Alberto Cecilia Falcón. But perhaps Operation Condor's most lasting effect was the creation of the so-called cartel. Before Luis Echeverria and López Portillo's war on drugs, there were just cliques of growers and movers who smuggled marijuana and heroin to the U.S. But after the operation, the small-scale traffickers were stomped out, effectively creating a new breed of stronger traffickers operating under the direct protection of Mexican authorities, primarily the PJF and DFS. In reality, Operation Condor was more about squashing leftist movements than it was about any real campaign against narcotics. It was the local communities who paid the heaviest price. We have yet to know the real number of victims. Federal authorities concealed the bodies, both on paper and in clandestine mass graves. Whether it was the federal government's outright goal in the operation or a mere byproduct, the real winners were the drug barons who would take control of the drug trafficking routes and the politicians and state officials who received a nicely packed suitcase for their support and protection. Join us for the next episode on the rise of cocaine where we cover how the cocaine market gained a footing in Mexico, how the PJF and DFS helped to create Mexico's first cartel, and the beginning of the Federation. This episode was written by Le Moler, post-production by Sharpspoon Media. Sources for this episode are Underground Empire by James Mills, CIA Assets and the Rise of the Guadalajara Connection, by Jonathan Marshall. Nuestra Historia Narcotica. Pasajes para relegalizar las drogas en México by Frolan Enciso. Narcoland by Annabel Hernandez. Operation Condor, Mexico's anti-drug campaign enters a new era by Richard Craig. Cocaine politics, drugs, armies, and the CIA in Central America by Peter Dale Scott and Jonathan Marshall. The Dawn of Mexico's Dirty War, Luisio Cabañas and the Party of the Poor, by Kate Doyle. Operation Condor, The War on Drugs and Counterinsurgency in the Golden Triangle, 1977 to 1983, by Adela Cedillo. And The Dope, by Benjamin T. Smith. <laughs>